Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Meaning, which comes from stories, is the topic of this two-part series on how stories make the world. Our guest is Stephen Most, author of Stories Make the World, Reflections on Storytelling and the Art of the Documentary. In this book, Most shares his experience as a playwright, writer, and creator of documentary films over the past 50-plus years. In Steve's 2007 visit to Radio Curious, we discussed his book, River of Renewal, Myth and History of the Klamath Basin. His website is Stephen, with a P-H, stephenmost.com. Stories Make the World is a crucial account of the principles and paradoxes that attend the quest to represent reality truthfully. Most shows how documentary filmmakers and other non-fiction storytellers come to understand their subjects and cast light on the world through their art. You may stream or download films referred to in Stories Make the World at videoproject.com slash stories. Steve Most visited the Radio Curious Studios on August 4th, 2017. We begin with Steve Most's description of his initial experiences, starting with his arrival to Peru's north coast in 1964. He contrasts information, including raw facts, and meaningful knowledge with the story. In 1964, I traveled to Peru's north coast. I was an undergraduate, and although I had not studied anthropology, a professor gave me a field studies grant to do ethnographic research near the Moche River, which flows from the Andes to the Pacific, watering an otherwise lunar landscape along the way. At the time, I was wondering who I was, how I should live, and what was worth doing. I thought that seeing those questions reflected in the lives of others and in other ways of life could bring me closer to finding out what was personally meaningful. I had read about Pedro Azabache and wanted to meet him. He lived south of the city of Trujillo on a farm near the town of Moche. The leader of the Summer Field Studies program, a graduate student, had other ideas. He regarded anthropology as a science, and that, for him, meant collecting data that, with the aid of theories and equations, could make a durable contribution to the knowledge of mankind. He spent his summer in a rented room by a truck stop on the Pan American Highway, counting all the buses, trucks, cars, and cycles that passed by. He did not record the art that drivers painted on their vehicles, hearts, flowers, or designs displaying the names of wives and girlfriends. He had no use for subjective facts. He wanted Cartesian data, raw information. Why then study the life of an individual? Pedro Azabache was a Moche Indian. An anthropologist study indigenous people, true enough. But Azabache was no exemplar of a traditional culture. He was an outlier, a unique person. Having graduated from a school of fine arts in Lima, 
Azabache headed an arts institute in Trujillo. I argued that his life story would open a window onto the culture of Moche, and so would his paintings, which portray everyday life in the town and countryside of his native ground. Moreover, as an artist, Azabache connected the present day with the ancient past, for the coastal farmlands irrigated by the Moche River are the ancestral home of the Mochica, a pre-Incaic civilization known for artistic brilliance that reached its peak about a thousand years ago. Beyond the irrigated land, two weathered pyramids made of massive adobe bricks rise from the desert, the Temple of the Sun and the Temple of the Moon. Had I been making documentaries at the time, I would have realized that Azabache's narrative and his art, when combined with images of the legacy of his Mochica ancestors, offered a graphic sense of his world that I could share with others. I caught a collective cab on the Pan American Highway heading toward Moche. The colectivo stopped at the town's plaza near its double-towered church. I got out, along with five mocheros, and the pig that one of the women held in a cloth bag close to her chest. I could tell they were mocheros. Their features and facial expressions resembled people portrayed on the stirrup-spouted ceramic sculptures of mochica artists. Dug out from desert sands and displayed on museum shelves, mochica pottery seemed to represent everything the ancients knew and imagined. Fantastic creatures with human faces and fangs. Birds' heads with human bodies. Gods wielding scepters. Shapely gourds and tubers. Pelicans, jaguars, sea lions, crabs, and other wildlife. Fellatio and copulation. A woman giving birth, the baby crowning. A woman drumming. A man with a skin disease without a nose. A whistling shaman a warrior and his captive, and portraits of myriad individuals, their heads topped by the spout of a pot. Many centuries later, the people of Moche were living in a different world from that of their ancestors, but they looked the same. At the edge of town, I saw the Mochica pyramids and marveled. As I walked along a dirt road between adobe walls and irrigation ditches that bordered sunken fields, a barefoot boy, about 12 years old, wearing blue work pants, a checkered shirt, and a sombrero, approached me. The boy asked, ¿Qué razón? And, without waiting for an answer, walked on. The mysterious question reverberated in my mind. ¿Qué razón? For what reason? Why was I there, on that continent, among strangers? What did this place, where people spoke a language I barely knew, have to do with my life? Why did I want to learn about a stranger's life? I climbed the larger of the two adobe pyramids, the Huaca del Sol, and looked toward the Pacific. Its waves, I thought, washed the shores of my California homeland, Geographically, I was on the same planet. But que razón? For what reason? The life and death of Mochica civilization. 
and of the Chimu who conquered them, and the Inca who conquered them, and the Spanish who conquered them. Was there some destiny or underlying logic to this history? Is there a more than physical continuity between the people of Mochi and their ancestors? What remained? What was lost? What was disappearing? What was changing into something new? And what did this history have to do with the life of Pedro Azabache, or myself, or anyone else? Unable to answer these questions, I fell into a reverie. Hours later, as the reddening sun seared the horizon, I walked to the Pan American Highway, caught a colectivo, and went to Trujillo. That night, I was sitting in a restaurant waiting for dinner, when a man at a nearby table turned to his companion and asked, Que horas son? What time is it? That, I suddenly realized, is what the boy wanted to know. He expected the gringo to have a watch. That question had an answer. I was looking for meaning. He wanted information. Actually, the question, what time is it, has answers of both kinds. A fact measured by the position of a shadow, the hands of a clock, the spin of an atom, and meaning, which comes from stories. Steve Most, may we presume that your experiences on the north coast of Peru in the mid-1960s became the foundation for your life's work? Often one will have an early experience and have no idea what the significance is, how it's related to the rest of your life. And for me, being in Peru, hardly speaking Spanish, just because I got a grant, that was like being catapulted to another world. But in fact, the combination of visual and verbal expression was, and and the practice of keeping a journal and recording what I understood, what I didn't know, what I'd like to find out about my impressions, that became the basis for a life's work. A documentary film is one in which, of course, you have what the camera records, but one also has to understand and judge what one is seeing, what people are saying, who to talk to next. That's a very active mental life that has to accompany what the camera is doing. And I could see that in Pedro Azabache and also the people around him. As far as awareness is concerned, another form of awareness that I was exposed to that summer in Peru came through a, a shaman, a, a healer, Pedro's good friend, Eduardo Calderon. And, and as a Moche Indian, Pedro had some of the ancient fears of sorcery, that he would be harmed by the spirit of his uncle, who was jealous of him, and uh, Pedro would actually get physically sick, and that would require a healing ceremony, an all-night ceremony. So I just stumbled into a place where I got to know not only Pedro as an extraordinary person, but Eduardo Calderon, who was a sculptor, who taught in his art school, but also was a, a shamanic healer. And uh, Eduardo and I became lifelong friends as well. Now, the, the mesa that Eduardo practices, and, and mesa means table, but it's actually a kind of ceremonial microcosm, 
uh, an all-night ceremony, but with a microcosm of symbolic objects that concentrates every aspect of existence, uh, positive and negative forces, the world around us. The ceremony that uh, Calderon conducted was one of awareness because there would be witnesses, uh, other people from the countryside, more than an audience, and there'd be the healer and the person who had a problem who brought that to the Mesa. But that came out as an expression before an audience. And it was a, a way of talking about one's internal problems, one's conflicts, one's fears in front of people in such a way that one could understand it and there could be some kind of symbolic resolution of the tension you felt in your life. In a way that one could understand it, can you tell us about that way that made it understandable? If one has a, a serious problem, and uh, I remember there was a woman whose daughter had left. She figured that her daughter had run off with this guy, but she was anxious. She didn't know what had happened to her daughter. Or a man who suspected that his boss had run off with his wife and was furious but helpless, but also wasn't sure what was going on. If there's a problem like that, it's, it's very difficult to express it. It's a private matter. You may not be able to handle your feelings. What the Mesa does is, is concentrate this in time and space because the Mesa occurs from night at night until dawn in space because there's a symbolic microcosm with objects that represent everything in the world. It's like a keyboard and standing vertically are swords and staffs representing the devil, Christ, saints, the sword of Moses, and these vibrate uh, in the ceremony of shamanism with the aid of psycho-hallucinogenic drugs. We're visiting with Stephen Most, who lives in Berkeley, California, uh, who is a writer of films and plays and many media, whose most recent book, as of 2017, is Stories Make the World, Reflections on Storytelling and the Art of the Documentary. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Steve, in the way that you present the events that occur at the Mesa, the woman whose daughter has run off, uh, for instance, you integrate that into your experience as a friend with Eric Erickson, who conjoins the, the Mesa with a psychiatric uh, point of view of dealing with similar problems. Can you tell us about how you've uh, connected those? When I went to Peru, I was a, a Harvard student. I hadn't had any experience with an indigenous culture. I certainly hadn't had any experience with shamanism. I needed to understand it as best I could and relate it to the life I was leading as, a, as an undergraduate. Eric Erickson was a very famous... A psychoanalyst. He became famous because of the concept of the identity crisis and developing a full theory of the human life cycle. And he was my mentor. Uh, I actually built my education in college around his guidance. And when I went to him to tell him about my experience with Eduardo Calderon and shamanic healing, he said, well, that's really similar to what I do as a psychoanalyst. It's a matter of eliciting people's stories 
in a way that reduces their anxiety. And then he told me about a a Mexican healer who leads a woman who's having trouble in childbirth through uh, through a story about these little beings that are creating pains inside of her. He says this is fundamentally what an analyst does. It, uh, an analyst helps somebody tell a story in a way that they can understand their lives and reduce their anxiety. I found this uh, very, very wise of Eric Erickson. Um, at the time, indigenous cultures were often dismissed as primitive, and there was an assumption that anything that civilization did had to be better than what native people did. Eric Erickson saw beyond that. He had a, a profound respect for people of all cultures, including native people. I later learned that he himself had had an encounter with a Yurok sucking doctor, a, a healer of the Yurok tribe in Northern California. And I got to know the family of this woman, Fanny Flounder, many years later. As part of your work with the Yurok people and the Klamath River. That's correct, yes. That we have discussed in previous interviews with Steve Most and his book, River of Renewal, here on Radio Curious. The connections that you also had with two other people, two women, uh, that were highly influential in your work. Can you share those with us? One of those women, Janetta Sagan, I met as an adult. I was fairly formed, but uh, she was an extremely inspiring person. She'd been part of the Italian resistance as a teenager. Of the Jewish resistance and Italian resistance of World War II. In World War II, yes. And then when the Greek junta took over, Uh, more than a decade after the end of World War II, she realized that people were being tortured. There were human rights violations similar to the ones that she herself experienced as a prisoner. And so she developed Amnesty International as a really international organization. She brought Joan Baez and Melina Mercury on board to do concerts. She traveled with Joan Baez, and she did it all out of her kitchen. As, as a housewife. She never sought to be famous. She sought to be effective. When the coup occurred in Chile, she somehow got a hold of Pinochet's phone number and talked to him and demanded that he release the people he'd imprisoned. Although I'm not an activist in that way, she was somebody I really wanted the world to know about, and I'm glad to have a chapter about her in my book, Stories Make the World. Perhaps the person who was most influential in my life was, was Hannah Arendt. Hannah Arendt was somebody who had a a profound understanding not only of the 20th century and totalitarianism and uh, genocide and and the really disturbing and unique phenomena of the 20th century. She saw this in a very deep context of uh, the history of thought, especially Western thought. And she was a, a, a thinker. She never called herself a philosopher. So there aren't really Arentians, but there are people who uh, got guidance in thinking in a really deep way, in a critical way. Hannah Arendt uh, would, would look at a situation that a lot of people were commenting about, and she'd see right through the conventional wisdom of the day. She would think about things in the most fundamental way. She would look at the words you were using and analyze them and make important distinctions. She would come to terms with what people were saying and understand where they were coming from in a critical way 
that helped me a lot when I was trying to understand new subjects in order to make films about them. For Hannah Arendt, understanding was what she was about. And if one takes a position in regard to a subject that you're trying to learn about, that limits your understanding. You have a, you, one has to examine every relevant viewpoint in order to arrive at an enlarged vision of your subject. She called this impartiality, uh, and she talked about its origins in ancient Greece, in Homer. Homer sang of the Trojans and the Greeks. She also was very interested in theater, and, I, and I'm a playwright. She understood that the uh, characters in a play are protagonists and antagonists, and you can't, you can't uh, assume you know who they are until the action of the play uh, works out, and, and you don't make a judgment until the end. And the meaning of, of what you've witnessed comes out in thought afterwards. It can't be reduced to a message. So the very uh, understanding I have of something I represent as a playwright or represent as a documentary filmmaker, that sense of what I'm doing and what I need to do in order really to come to terms with that subject uh, came largely through uh, what I've learned from Hannah Arendt. Beyond impartiality, can you explain that more as a way of developing an understanding and in integrating that into one's way of thinking? Just recently, in trying to understand somebody I met in making a documentary, I developed a, a set of concepts that are widely applicable. There's a spectrum between impartiality and partiality, and there's also a spectrum between understanding things with almost no context and with a very high context. So much of the information we receive and that influences so many people has no context whatsoever. It comes in snippets over the internet. Whereas if you read a book, see a movie, a documentary, you'll understand information within a very large context. Similarly, there is a spectrum between partiality and impartiality. And you can see this in many professions. A doctor, of course, is impartial as far as the diagnosis is concerned, but might be very low context in just looking at what's happening in your chest rather than asking about your life, your diet, your health. A scientist might have a very broad and profound context uh, so that if you read Einstein, he had a really broad understanding of the world around him. He developed a, a, a theory of cosmology. He was a very high-context person. But there are other scientists who are extremely specialized and have very low context in what they know. So in, in analyzing somebody that I'm talking to, those two categories, the degree to which someone is, is partial versus impartial, and the degree to which their understanding is low versus high context is very important. And even a politician who has positions on, on public issues may be a very high context person. It could be somebody who understands the point of view of uh, his or her constituents, but has made judgments and choices with that large context in mind. You relate what you just explained uh to the work that you uh, did and learned from with Eduardo Calderon and Pedro Azabache. Can you expound on that? What 
Eduardo Calderon does in the Mesa is put a patient's suffering within the largest possible context. The Mesa really concentrates all of time and all of space. And at the beginning, Eduardo will sing a song that takes you to the four mountains that that border the world. He'll sing a song that takes you back to the indigenous past and then on to the future so that what you're going through is within the largest possible spatial and temporal context. The person who is bringing suffering in front of the Mesa is also within a community, which takes that person beyond the privacy of the personal body to understand that other people go through these things also and can understand these things. This is a very high-context form of medicine. It's high-context socially. It's high-context philosophically. It's interesting that it's called primitive by some who contrast it with the specialized uh, categories of knowledge and study that uh, exist more now than they did a thousand years ago. We have a highly individualized society. Yet we have the collective ego that our way is a better way, uh, presumably individually and collectively, because it is what our experience uh, uh, encompasses. That's right. And, and that's why immersing oneself in a very different kind of society can be invaluable. So going back to your time in Peru, um, how were you received as a young man from North America in these distinctly different uh, cultures, the, the Moche culture uh, with Pedro, for example, and then again with Eduardo? I was very fortunate that coming from the United States in in Latin America, in Peru, uh, I was was well-received. I was received as an individual in in some respects, as a young man who really wanted to learn, really wanted to know the people around me. I also loved the Spanish language. I found in Spanish uh, an ability to express emotions that I hadn't found in my own culture. And people, I think, responded to that, to the appetite that I had for their culture, for their language, for knowing about them. One aspect of this that was rather interesting is that Eduardo Calderon was a student of world religions, and he had never met a Jew before. So he was, I think, fascinated just to see somebody with a, a head like mine, because he was a sculptor, he made a bust of my head, but he was also very interested in talking world religions with me. So he invited me to his house. We had a bowl of chicha, which is a corn liquor. It's very potent. He, uh, his wife, Maria, put on some music. He started plopping clay on a table and forming a bust of my head, and that's when he uh, started talking world religions. He'd pretend to be Confucius. He'd pretend to be Buddha. And then he said, do you know that I am a brujo? I am a, uh, a shamanic healer. And I did not. And then he went to the corner of his outdoor space and pulled a, a pelican wing and put it on him and started dancing with the pelican wing and the head over his head. And then it was my turn to dance with the pelican wing. So that was a rather nice uh, introduction to my friend, Eduardo Calderon, as a shaman. Steve Most is the author of Stories Make the World, Reflections on Storytelling and the Art of the Documentary. 
Stories Make the World is based on Steve Most's 50-plus years of experience as a playwright, writer, and documentary filmmaker. His website is stephenmost.com. And if you go to videoproject.com stories, you'll be able to stream or download the films mentioned in Stories Make the World. This program was recorded on August 4th, 2017. There are over 630 archive editions of Radio Curious on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free to listen, download, and share anytime, anywhere as my gift to you. We appreciate your comments, ideas, and suggestions and like to hear from you. Email is curious at radiocurious.org. And the phone is 707 706- 462-6541. Christina Onestead is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>